Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. This is ASHP's Advocating for Impact podcast. Today's episode focuses on the ability of pharmacists to order and administer COVID-19 therapeutics for treatment and prophylaxis. This issue is evolving rapidly. Since we recorded this episode a few days ago, the federal government has authorized pharmacists in all 50 states to order and administer COVID-19 therapeutics for prophylaxis and treatment. Stick around after the episode for an update on this issue and a detailed discussion of the new authority. Here's the episode. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advocating for Impact podcast, where every episode covers a policy issue impacting the practice of pharmacy. I'm Tom Krause. Today, I'm joined by Kyle Robb, who leads our ASHP effort to support state affiliate advocacy. Thanks for joining me today, Kyle. Thank you for having me. So let's dive into today's topic, the emerging role of pharmacists in delivery of COVID-19 therapeutics. So let's let's start with some background on the current state of the FDA-authorized treatment for COVID-19 infection. What products has FDA issued an EUA for granted approval to to treat COVID-19? So as of early September 2021, when we recorded this podcast, there are currently six therapeutics that have been authorized or approved by the FDA to treat or prevent COVID-19 infection. A lot of these therapies are monoclonal antibody cocktails, so meaning it's one product that consists of multiple monoclonal antibodies. And monoclonal antibodies tend to have pretty long generic names. Uh, So there are shorthand names that we often refer to these products by for the sake of brevity. So we'll go over both the actual monoclonal antibody names of these products and the shorthand names uh, if they have some. So uh, these six products are Cazarizumab and Endevimab. Uh, This is known shorthand as Regen Cove. There is also Bamlanivimab and Edizevimab. This is known as the Lilly product, and that is a reference to the fact that it was developed by Eli Lilly and company. There is also Sotrovimab, along with Remdesivir, Tocilizumab, and Baricitinib. It's important to note that Remdesivir, Tocilizumab, and Baricitinib are authorized for treatment of hospitalized patients only, and today's conversation will focus on outpatient therapeutics for non-hospitalized patients. So we're going to set those three aside and really focus on the first three that we talked about, uh, and that is, again, Regencove, the Lilly product, and Sotrovimab. It is important to note that distribution of the Lilly product was paused by HHS on June 25th, 2021, uh, due to decreased efficacy against the beta and gamma variants of the coronavirus. Distribution of this product remained paused completely until August 27th, 2021, when the EUA was updated to authorize use of bamlanivimab and edizevimab only in states, territories, and other U.S. jurisdictions where recent CDC data shows that the combined frequency of resistant variants are less than or equal to 5%. So it is important to note that Region Cove and Lilly are both being distributed exclusively by the United States federal government, and they're being provided at no cost to providers. That's how uh, the federal government, the CDC and FDA are going to go about restricting distribution of the Lilly product to make sure that it does not go to areas with high levels of resistant strains. Citrovimab is also currently available for providers to acquire uh, through normal acquisition channels, but it is not being provided by the federal government, and it would, be, uh, it would have to be purchased at normal market acquisition rates. So as I mentioned, these are the three products that are approved for non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 infection. But Regen Cove is also novel and unique in that it is currently, to date, the only therapeutic 
that has been authorized by the FDA for post-exposure prophylaxis in individuals that do not have a confirmed infection. Thanks. Thanks for giving us the kind of lay of the land there, Kyle. So, so FDA's EUA for Regencove earlier this, this month was was particularly important. Um, and you mentioned the, the the indication for post-exposure prophylaxis. Can you just share a little bit about what makes that particular therapy unique? So in addition to being the only product that has been authorized for post-exposure prophylaxis, Regencove is also unique in that it can be delivered as a subcutaneous injection, as opposed to all other authorized therapies that are IV only. Yeah, so let's let's uh, focus on the authorized uses of Regencove, and and you know we're talking about this because it's it's relevant to the role that pharmacists can play in access to uh, COVID therapeutics. So it's not you know we're we're not hosting this podcast to kind of uh, talk through the the sort of relative merits of individual products or anything like that. But the the point here is that uh, because of the sort of way that this product is is administered and kind of the the training of pharmacists, it becomes relevant and uh, kind of may inform the the role that pharmacists can can play in access. So, so, so Kyle, can you just tell us with regard to Regencove about the eligibility criteria for its use, both for prophylaxis and for treatment? So Region Cove is authorized for use as post-exposure prophylaxis in patients who are 12 years of age and older and weighing at least 40 kilograms. And in order to qualify for post-exposure prophylaxis, a person must have a known exposure to an individual with a confirmed positive case of COVID-19 infection. Uh, and that would mean uh, meeting the CDC criteria for close contact, which uh, typically entails being less than six feet away from a person in an indoor space. Or it could also apply to individuals in congregate settings, such as nursing homes or prisons, who may not necessarily meet the CDC criteria for close contact with a specific individual, but COVID-19 infection is sort of known to be spreading throughout those facilities. So in addition to having the close contact, an individual would qualify for post-exposure prophylaxis, would either be unvaccinated or not fully vaccinated, um, and or immunocompromised. Now, it is important to note that this situation is fluid. We're still getting a lot more information about what uh, the specific risk factors around severe COVID-19 infection are. At the current moment, the, the current criteria to classify someone as immunocompromised or at high risk are included in the emergency use authorization eligibility criteria. Um, however, it is important to note that that criteria may change as we get more information. In terms of the administration of post-exposure prophylaxis, it is administered as a 600 milligram dose of each of the monoclonal antibodies given as a single dose, either as an IV infusion or a subcutaneous injection as soon as possible after a known exposure to COVID-19. For the purposes of post-exposure prophylaxis, there is no preference listed in the EUA for IV versus sub-Q. So either route is acceptable for the purposes of post-exposure prophylaxis. Again, this is typically a one-time only dose, but if you do have an individual who may be in, you know, say a nursing home that does have a chronic immunocompromising condition and there continues to be spread and risk factor for COVID-19, those individuals might be indicated for an ongoing post-exposure prophylaxis which would entail the initial full dose of 600 milligrams each, followed by a half dose of 300 milligrams of each of these on an every four-week interval. So that's prophylaxis. For the purposes of treatment, 
Region Cove is also approved, again, in patients who are 12 years of age and older and weighing greater than 40 kilograms with the same risk factors for progression to severe COVID-19, mainly being uh, unvaccinated or not fully vaccinated and or having certain immunocompromising conditions. For individuals with treatment, they do have to have a confirmed positive test of COVID-19 to qualify for treatment. Um, again, treatment is also uh, the same dose, 600 milligrams each uh, of each of these monoclonal antibodies given as one single dose. The EUA does say for the purposes of treatment, it is preferable to give treatment via IV infusion if possible, but it also gives the caveat that if IV infusion is not imminently available to the patient uh, and it will delay the patient in getting treatment or possibly prevent the patient from getting treatment, then providers should proceed to administer the treatment as a subcutaneous injection. Uh, now, in the, the trial data, the phase three trial data that led to the authorization of Regencove, it was found that when used for prophylaxis in asymptomatic persons, uh, Region Cove reduced the risk of people developing symptomatic infections by 81% versus the control group. For individuals who were treated with Region Cove who were already showing signs and symptoms of COVID-19, uh, it reduced the respective risk of hospitalization and all-cause mortality by 70% each in those groups. So a 70% lower risk of hospitalization and a 70% lower risk of all-cause mortality when given to people who are already displaying mild to moderate symptoms. Yeah, thanks for for sharing those criteria, Kyle. And I think that, you know, as you mentioned, you, administration of this product, sub-Q, is, you know, potentially, you know, creates opportunities for pharmacists in different settings to be able to administer that therapy, you know, as, as soon as possible uh, for a patient that, that's been potentially exposed to, to COVID-19. So I think that's going to be really helpful. Can you just share a little bit about how these therapies fit into the, the broader public health response to COVID-19? Absolutely. So it's important to note that COVID-19 therapeutics are not a substitute for vaccination, and they do not attenuate the need for con infection control measures uh, such as masking and social distancing. These therapies should be seen as an addition to those measures, but not an alternative. So therapeutics like Region Cove can be extremely crucial in reducing the rates of hospitalization in areas that are experiencing surges in COVID infections. And by extension, they can help bolster the treatment capacity of the healthcare system at large and attenuate possible hospital bed shortages and capacity issues that may lead to individuals with severe COVID infection or other urgent and emergent health needs not having access to healthcare services. So that's what we want to try to avoid with these, these types of services. Sub-Q administration particularly really increases the option for potential treatment locations for COVID-19 therapeutics. And that applies both within health system settings and institutional settings, but also in community settings as well. If you think about it right, subcutaneous injections uh, require a lot less equipment than an IV infusion. There would be no need for an infusion chair uh, or you know, the infrastructure that would go into setting up an outpatient infusion suite. This means that health systems can be more nimble in establishing COVID-19 isolation units uh, and providing treatment to, to COVID-positive individuals. Also in rural and underserved communities means that uh, there is an additional you know, option or, or a new option for patients who are experiencing these mild to moderate infections to get early treatment in areas where you know, non-pharmacy healthcare providers uh, and infusion services may not be otherwise available to these patients. Uh, in all situations, really what we're trying to do here is you know, find ways to keep patients out of emergency rooms or other confined areas 
where they may intermingle with uh, non-COVID infected patients or uh, additional healthcare staff that might not be directly involved in providing COVID-19 care and, you know, really reduce the possibility uh, for possible uh, additional spread uh, of COVID-19. Yeah, so let's talk about then, kind of given that context, what, what is the role that pharmacists can be playing and how can they be leveraged to optimize uh, the impact of, of the currently available therapeutics that you've mentioned, as well as future therapeutics for COVID-19? So a lot of the ways that we believe that pharmacists can be leveraged to assist in administration of COVID-19 therapeutics really mirror the ways that pharmacists have already been utilized to administer COVID-19 vaccinations. So as we all know, the PrEP Act waivers have authorized pharmacists to order and administer vaccines for COVID-19 and test for COVID-19 nationwide. And this has really demonstrated pharmacists' capacity for active engagement in the public health and pandemic response uh, and the ability of pharmacists to really extend the reach of the broader healthcare system and you know, get people care in more different dynamic environments. A frequent a uh, figure that you see cited is that, you know, 90% of Americans live within five miles of a pharmacy. So pharmacists are extremely accessible by many measures. They are the most accessible of all healthcare professionals. And pharmacists, again, as demonstrated by vaccination, are already trained to administer subcutaneous injections. So pharmacists could be utilized in community settings, again, you know, where there is not a lot of other healthcare options available, uh, but they could also be used to attenuate staffing shortages uh, in medical centers that are experiencing a surge in new cases. Uh, we are seeing, you know, major issues with uh, healthcare burnout um, and a lot of healthcare professionals uh, stepping away after, you know, some, some very difficult times in treating patients. We're also seeing very rapid changes uh, in the sort of surge areas. So, uh, you know, surges are, are coming and going in different areas and it's difficult for staffing to sort of catch up with the need for surge in some of these areas. And also inevitably, right, if you are seeing a lot of infections, then you may have infections among some staff, uh, some healthcare staff that are going to temporarily sideline them from being able to participate in patient care operations. Uh, all this is to say there are very serious staffing pressures in these surge areas in providing care for all the patients that need care. And, you know, uh, giving pharmacists the ability to uh, administer COVID-19 therapy can really create a lot of flexibility and care team arrangements. Uh, and allow health systems to deploy healthcare teams to treat COVID positive patients that might not need to include as many physician or nurses in physically present as would otherwise be necessary uh, if pharmacists did not have the authority to order and administer these medications. Yeah, and we're, we're already seeing health systems in some of those surge areas you know, working to, to leverage pharmacists in exactly that way for treatment. And we're, we're beginning to see states explore how they can use pharmacists, including for, for prophylaxis. So maybe can you can you share a little bit about kind of the regulatory barriers and, and what we need to do to fully utilize pharmacists for administration of these therapies? The biggest barriers that we're currently seeing around pharmacist administration of these medications revolve around state scope of practice restrictions on pharmacist administering medications and ordering medications. Uh, particularly when it comes to administering medications, there are still a few states that do not allow pharmacists to administer medications at all. There are several other states that might have varying restrictions on pharmacists administering medications. So they might restrict pharmacists to only being able to administer certain drugs uh, via certain routes of administration, uh, or they sometimes require the pharmacist to have an active uh, and formal collaborative practice agreement in place 
with the prescriber of the drug before they are able to administer any medications. In terms of the pharmacist's scope of practice around prescribing, there are, is only uh, one state out of all the states so far, and that is Arkansas, which has determined that existing laws permit pharmacists to prescribe a region cove and administer region cove. So Arkansas passed a immunization bill earlier this year in 2021, and the uh, Arkansas Department of Health and Board of Pharmacy have interpreted that law to also apply to region cove. So pharmacists in Arkansas uh, currently can't independently prescribe region cove, but that is the only state. Every other state, there is, pharmacists are not uh, able, under existing laws, able to prescribe uh, any of, of these COVID-19 therapeutics. There are several options that, that states could take to, to remedy this. So in certain states where the Board of Pharmacy does have authority to issue statewide protocols, those boards could theoretically issue a statewide protocol that would allow pharmacists to prescribe region cove. We see Oregon is actually pursuing this right now. And hopefully there will be a statewide protocol in Oregon uh, for pharmacists to order and administer region cove. Another possibility would be a statewide standing order from the Department of Health that would allow pharmacists to effectively uh, dispense, dispense and administer region cove uh, to patients uh, without having to have any prior prescription. We're seeing this is the case in Mississippi and Missouri. Uh, so as of the time of this recording, there are standing orders in those states that do allow pharmacists to order and administer region cove. Notably, there is also a standing order currently in Florida. However, as we mentioned about laws around administration, Florida does not permit pharmacists to administer medications. So that means that the standing order in Florida does not apply to pharmacists. And pharmacists in Florida still, despite standing order, are not currently able to order and administer region cove. In addition to a, a statewide protocol or a, a statewide standing order from the Department of Health, states with a declared emergency, the, the governor of the state could also issue a, a executive order that would allow pharmacists to temporarily order and administer uh, COVID-19 therapeutics. As of the time of this recording, we have not yet seen any of those, uh, but that would be a viable pathway to give pharmacists that authority. On a national level, the, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services could issue an additional PrEP Act waiver that would authorize pharmacists to order and administer COVID-19 therapeutics nationwide uh, in the same way they have for vaccinations and COVID-19 testing. And so, you know, we're working uh, with uh, the government and with our, our uh, ASHP state affiliates to try to, you know, advance access to some of these pharmacist services. Kyle, can you share a little bit about how we're going about that? Sure. So, so ASHP and our national partner organizations in pharmacy all wrote a letter on August 19th to the federal government, to the Department of Health and Services, requesting that they issue an additional PrEP Act waiver. There is strong precedent from the previous PrEP Act waivers around pharmacists ordering and administering immunizations and testing uh, that the precedent exists that uh, the that HHS could, could issue an additional waiver that nationwide uh, would allow pharmacists to order and administer these COVID-19 therapeutics. Uh, so, so ASHP is very involved in that. We are in discussion with HHS. We are, you know, uh, advocating uh, on behalf of our members nationally with HHS for additional PrEP Act waivers. 
In absence of an additional PREP Act waiver, we are engaging with our state affiliate organizations uh, to encourage them to seek some of the solutions that I just mentioned before on the state level. So we are working with them to, uh, you know, help them write uh, sample advocacy letters to you know, point them to the right people to engage with and doing anything we can to support, you know, state level efforts and national efforts to sort of move this forward. Yeah, and I, you know, I do think there's 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 real potential here. There is a there's a need for access to to these products particularly in places that are experiencing staffing shortages, particularly where there are less vaccinated populations. Again, not not as an alternative to vaccination, but just because of the kind of acute nature of where we are in the the pandemic, there's a a real desire by policymakers to encourage access. So, you know, I think, you know, there's a good chance that we get some uptake and, and, and there's certainly interest both at the state and federal level. So, Kyle, can you just share a little bit about, you know, what opportunities there are for individual pharmacists to advocate around some of these issues? Absolutely. And, you know, in addition to being involved with their uh, state level pharmacy or, or professional organizations, uh, individual pharmacists can uh, write letters themselves to their board of pharmacy, uh, to their Department of Health, to their governor, um, you know, indicating uh, how these expanded, how this expanded scope of practice uh, and these new authorities would benefit them in their specific practice area. We've seen a lot of examples of, of innovative care models being developed in a lot of these surge areas. Uh, so specifically, we've been in contact with members from Arkansas and Kentucky that have established prescriber protocols and collaborative practice arrangements uh, where they work with, you know, through the authority uh, and a protocol developed with physicians who may not be physically on site with them. They can evaluate patients to see if they meet the EUA criteria. Uh, and if they do, then they can order and administer pursuant to, to that authority. So, you know, those are sort of models and practice that are showing that, you know, this is, this is useful, this is helpful, but we are going to need state action to sort of make that statewide or potentially make it nationwide. Uh, so individual pharmacists can, you know, uh, can be involved in, in, in contacting their officials and specifically pharmacists who are already sort of working and trying to establish some of these care models uh, can share that information with, with state and national partners to show uh, just how necessary this is and just how much this can help in responding to a COVID surge. So Kyle, I think you're describing uh, circumstances in which pharmacists can really help provide greater access to these therapeutics. How does this initiative fit into the broader push to expand pharmacists' scope of practice to truly reflect their education, training, and professional skill set? In, in this particular instance, our advocacy efforts and the advocacy efforts that we're coordinating with the states, uh, we, we think they should be designed to apply not only to, to Region Cove or other approved therapeutics that are currently available, uh, but with a mind for possible future therapeutics uh, or additional uses for the existing therapeutics that, that might be coming soon. Uh, we know there's a lot of COVID-19 therapy research and drug developments uh, currently happening. So it's encouraging that this, this very first product that can be administered subcutaneously uh, has been authorized, but we don't expect it to be the last. We are hopeful there will be additional subcutaneous products there will be possibly uh, intramuscular products or oral products. And we want to make sure that these authorizations, if granted, uh, are worded in a way that as soon as those products become authorized and become available or as a, as a form of treatment, uh, that pharmacists can sort of automatically be uh, included in, in, in sort of providing that treatment to patients. 
in terms of longer term opportunities, we do see this as a potential opportunity to, you know, reevaluate state laws that have restrictions around administration of drugs. We can show the the value proposition and the necessity uh, of allowing pharmacists to administer drugs, uh, and hopefully in the future we can uh, use this as, as evidence to promote legislation to remove some of those restrictions uh, where they may exist in certain states. We also see this again as a uh, another potential area where we could bolster the argument for the importance of pharmacist collaborative practice uh, and and innovative and different care models. And also to, you know, a pharmacist uh, authority to initiate therapy uh, in the community site and, you know, uh, head off, uh, prevent hospitalization, uh, but also to, you know, again, be uh, potentially the entry point into the healthcare system that, you know, hopefully, again, ideally, pharmacist treatment will result in, in avoiding and evading hospitalization, but it also to pharmacists could potentially triage where necessary patients to higher levels of care. We also, too, you know, facing uh, the, the fall season is coming up. And we're facing the the possibility of a twin pandemic of influenza season along with COVID-19. So we additionally see this as an opportunity uh, for pharmacists to seek an expansion of scope of practice around their ability to test and treat for cough and cold uh, and influenza. So when patients do present to pharmacies uh, or do present to pharmacists, and they do exhibit uh, signs and, and symptoms of an upper respiratory infection, even if it might not be COVID-19, uh, pharmacists can provide them uh, with necessary care to prevent them from, from their, their, their disease state from worsening and also to, you know, again, alleviate uh, some of these hospitals and some of these other healthcare providers that might be inundated uh, with a, a, a large volume of COVID-19 patients. Well, yeah, Kyle, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity for uh, pharmacists to, you know, be utilized to expand access to these uh, therapies, both those that are not, you know, available now, as well as those in the future. And that, that could, as you mentioned, include both access to therapies for COVID-19, but also demonstrate and, and hopefully lay the groundwork for access to therapies for, for influenza. And, you know, I think that's an important demonstration of the kind of how pharmacists can play those, those roles in treatment. Uh, for policymakers. And we, and we know there are policymakers actively considering providing these authorities. So thank you for your work on this. You know, to our members, thank you for your advocacy uh, within your own communities. And Kyle, thank you for talking us through all these issues today. Thanks. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we have an important update on this topic. On September 9th, 2021, the United States Department of Health and Human Services announced an amendment to the COVID-19 Emergency PrEP Act declaration to allow pharmacists to order and administer select COVID-19 therapeutics, including subcutaneous monoclonal antibodies. The amendment broadly addresses COVID-19 therapeutics given orally, subcutaneously, or intramuscularly, including current and future medications that are approved, authorized, cleared, or licensed to treat or prevent COVID-19. In addition to licensed pharmacists, the amendment also allows licensed or registered pharmacy interns and qualified pharmacy technicians who meet the criteria in the amendment to administer certain COVID-19 therapeutics. This PrEP Act declaration is consistent with the effort that ASHP and our peer organizations led, urging HHS to issue an additional PrEP Act declaration permitting qualified pharmacists to order and administer therapeutics for prophylaxis and treatment of COVID-19. We're really excited about this. This is very consistent with the material that Kyle and I discussed during the episode, and we believe that the PrEP Act declaration allowing pharmacists to order and administer COVID-19 therapeutics will significantly expand patient access to needed treatments and post-exposure prophylaxis, particularly in medically underserved areas 
And we've in fact already been receiving communications from pharmacists uh, practicing in underserved communities who have indicated that this will be helpful to increase access to COVID-19 therapeutics in their communities. The amendment does not authorize pharmacists to independently order or administer IV monoclonal antibodies, but pharmacists supporting administration of those products can continue to do so if authorized by their state or as part of a collaborative practice agreement. So we hope this has been helpful to provide some additional information. We'll provide links to the information about this new authority in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.